Uh, let's get in the Bible now. We are in Acts chapter 6, I've been told. Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at the second half of the chapter this morning. The title of the sermon is A Quality Dude in Acts chapter 6, as we look at the character, the quality, and the life of Stephen from Acts 6. Uh, last week, Travis took us through verse 7. So we'll go uh, from 8 to 15, but we'll read verse 7 as well for a little bit of context. Reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. And it says in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I'm kind of thrilled to read your word this morning with this church that I love so much. I'm thankful to be here together to hear your word in anticipation of the power of your holy word as it's worked in us and through us and to us by the Holy Spirit. We just thank you, God. Give us that sense of anticipation as we sit now under the authority of your word that it is true and right and wonderful and that the image of Christ is being worked in us by the Holy Spirit, and that your word will truly not return void today, but do a work in us. We need these things in our lives. We need to be more conformed to the image of Christ. We need to learn to walk in the way that we ought to walk, to have better and greater loves because of the person of Jesus and your love for us, Father. So please help us to hear this morning, to respond to these things. Please, Lord, help me to teach and preach. I get a little rusty after a couple weeks, Lord, so I'm thrilled, but I'm also a little bit intimidated. Just pray that you please anoint me with your spirit, that I wouldn't be mindful of myself, but mindful of Christ and the Holy Word before us. Please use me by grace for the glory of Jesus and the good of the church. We ask it together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, thinking about Stephen as a quality dude, uh, have you ever heard the phrase said about someone, oh, you know what, he's full of it. You ever heard that phrase? You know that phrase. Maybe it's been directed at you. The truth is everybody is full of something. Everybody is full of something. 
Some people, as we all know, are full of themselves. Don't you love them? Some people are full of deceit. Some people are full of pride. At times it seems we are full of lust. We can find ourselves full of greed, full of envy. Some, as we said, are full of it, whatever it is. We can also find people who are full of surprises. You've heard that one. Sometimes we're full of joy and conversely sometimes full of fear. And this saying has real meaning because what we find as people is whatever we are full of tends to dictate or impact the character of oneself as well as the quality of one's life. If someone is full of envy, there's a flavor to their character and a quality to their life that affects that. But as God's people, we are actually called to be full of better things. There's a promise to us that we can be full of wonderful things and that we can imagine because of Jesus and according to what God's word says to us, a better life where we are full of God things, full of the right things, full of better things. And so this text helps us to understand what we ought to be full of as God's people and how we can begin to get there. Our text reveals the quality of this man named Stephen and what he was full of. So look at the list here that we see from our text in last week's text. The quality of Stephen. He was full of the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 5. He was full of faith. It also says in verse 5 from last week. And full of wisdom, we got from verse 3 of last week, also represented in verse 10 of this week. He was full of grace, we read today, and full of power. Now think about that. Think about what you are full of. And think about the alternative in the example of this man, Stephen. Try to imagine a life where you're full of the Spirit, full of faith, full of grace, full of wisdom, and full of power. You can't tell me that doesn't sound good. Full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of wisdom, full of grace, and full of power. Raise your hand if you want to be full of those things. What a guy, Stephen. What an example. So I want us to look at those things. Before we look at the guy and the quality dictated by what he was full of, let's see a bit of the context around it. Let's look briefly at what happens to him and the narrative that makes us think about Stephen. You'll remember from last week's text that this um, argument arose within the church because some people felt that they weren't being served sufficiently in the distribution of bread. And the apostles were faced with multitudinous problems, we're sure, in a church that grew to number well over 5,000 in a short period of time. And so they were hearing about drama all the time. And the Spirit led them in chapter 6 here to deal with drama in this new way. Well, let's appoint other people to deal with the drama. That's the best way to do it in church leadership. Delegate it. Do that all day long. Let's delegate this drama to someone else. Real and valid drama, certainly a hint of spiritual warfare there. But they said, let's find, they said to the people in verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and full of wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. Some see this as the beginning of a diaconate 
deacons and deaconesses within the church. So basically, there was this task that had to be accomplished. It was important and good and right, delegated to people who were full of the wisdom, full of wisdom, and full of the spirit. And Stephen was one of those guys. So he was clearly a godly dude, chosen by other godly people from amongst his peers for this special service. But I want us to remember as we think about the life, or at least this part of it, of Stephen today, that he was just a regular guy. Stephen was a regular guy, right? He was a lay leader within the church. He wasn't in vocational ministry. He wasn't paid to do it. He hadn't gone to some special school. He didn't have a title. He wasn't a pastor. And he was just this normal dude who was full of wisdom and the spirit and so selected by his peers to do this important thing in the church of helping people get helpful resources in the right way at the right time. He was just a regular guy. But we learn in verse 8, he moved in some extraordinary power, right? Verse 8 said, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and God's power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So as a regular guy, he was in charge of getting bread to certain widows, but he also on the side performed miracles. I love this guy. Right, just like down to earth, like, here, here you go, Mrs. Johnston, here's your bread and the miracles. <laughs> this is a good picture of a Christian here. Regular guy, but moved in power. Now that gives us just a small hint as an aside. The miracles in the New Testament were not just for the apostles. Someone would, some people say, well, the apostles wrote scripture, therefore they performed miracles as authenticating sign to show that what they wrote and what they said was from God became scripture. But once the canon was closed, scripture was in full, then the miracles ceased because they didn't need them anymore. But this guy wasn't an apostle. He never wrote a book in the Bible. He was a normal dude empowered by God to do awesome things. Please do more of that, God. Now, you would think then that Stephen's life in general would be awesome. He was well esteemed by his peers. He served faithfully in the church. He was full of all this stuff. He walked in miracles. He had this quality of character. So you think that life would generally be great for the guy. But I want us to remember what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy. That is true for all of us at all times. Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Anytime someone endeavors to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that is, anytime a follower of Jesus, by the work of the Holy Spirit in them through God's holy word, begins to look like Jesus in the world, they're going to suffer for it. You need to hear that, you need to know it. Jesus said the same thing over and over to his disciples. You're going to be persecuted because of me and because of your identification with me. And Paul was warning Timothy and subsequently asked, listen, if you want to look and feel and smell and live like Jesus in this world, you are going to encounter opposition in this world. Right? From the world, but ultimately the opposition we know would be from the enemy, from the devil. Listen, You want to know how to get the devil to leave you alone? Don't lead a faithful, fruitful Christian life. Don't try to be godly. Don't try to follow Jesus, live like Jesus, look like Jesus. Just be an apathetic, pew potato, do nothing Christian and the enemy won't mess with you. Doesn't need to. You're messing with yourself. 
But the moment you decide to get real about following Jesus and real about the process of sanctification and repentance and the power of the Holy Spirit and serving the Lord sacrificially and looking like Jesus in deep places of need, then you can be sure there will be opposition from the enemy and from the world. And so it says in verse 9, opposition arose, however. So here's that very thing unfolding. Jesus said it would happen. Paul said it would happen. Here's a guy making an impact in his community, and there is spiritual opposition that arrives. And that's the story of Acts, right? The story of Acts is Jesus' kingdom moves forward in power, and then the enemy responds with opposition. And we've seen the enemy changing tactics several times throughout the book of Acts, right? Opposition from without, and then corruption from within, and then dissensions amongst, and now persecution, again, coming from the people of this Jewish synagogue called the synagogue of the freemen. Now, there are, of course, within Christianity, within religion, within this sort of culture and context here, there are legitimate arguments and conversations and discussions. Not every argument, not every conversation, not every discussion is necessarily persecution or spiritual opposition. But we know from the text here that this was not a legitimate discussion. This was an attempt to simply come against Stephen and the work that God was doing through him. This becomes evidential as we look at verse 11 when it says, So they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified falsely. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, meaning the temple, and against the law. So this was evil opposition coming against a godly person and the work that God was doing through them. It's beautiful to see that Stephen, in the wisdom God was giving him, could handle himself. Right, look in verse 10. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Here's like a bunch of guys coming against him, right? It's a whole bunch on one guy. And they're from all these different regions. And here's just Stephen. But the whole crew could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit was giving them. And so after failing to silence Stephen with debate, they try to silence him with the Jewish law and those trumped up charges that we saw in verses 13 and 14. Every time I say trumped up, it has a new meaning now. I don't like it. The reason they brought those false charges about the temple was because, and quote, I'm reading from a commentator here, when Judea became a Roman province in 86, capital punish, punishment excuse me, was allowed only by the decree of the Roman governor, except in offenses by word or deed against the sanctity of the temple. Did you catch that? So, uh, you know, Israel was previously sovereign and they could exercise capital punishment until the Romans came in and said, you can't do that anymore unless it has to do with the temple. Because they were pretty particular about their temple the Jews were. So if someone's messing with the temple, then you have this authority. Continuing the quote, in such situations, the Sanhedrin, which is a governing body within Judaism at the time, was allowed to pronounce and execute the death sentence. 
They had tried to convict Christ in this way and failed. Remember that? They also produced witnesses saying, hey, we heard Jesus say that he would tear down the temple, right? And then rebuild it again in three days. Well, we know that Jesus was talking about himself and his work on the cross. Continuing the quote, as a result, they took Jesus to Pilate. With Stephen, however, they succeeded. Now, here's a spoiler alert. At the end of chapter 7, Stephen dies. Stephen is killed. He becomes the first martyr within the church. This story starts wonderfully. He is a quality dude. He dies a pretty gruesome death because of his quality life. And I want you to notice a couple other things here. I want you to notice, just kind of as an aside, but it's important, in verse 14, that the opposition admits that Jesus is alive. Did you catch that? If you read it carefully, you did. Verse 14, they said in their trumped up charges, for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, meaning the temple, and change the customs, meaning the sacrifices Moses handed down to us. Did you catch that? We heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. If the resurrection of Jesus were to go to trial in a court of law to determine its validity, this would be devastating evidence against the side that would say Jesus did not rise from the dead. This is called positive testimony from a hostile source. They admitted Jesus is alive. We heard them say that this Jesus of Nazareth will, present and future tense, that there was something that Jesus would do. Positive testimony from a hostile source. It doesn't help their case, but it seems now that they have no choice but to admit that Jesus seems to be alive. The way that he is alive in their perception is working in and through his people, the church. Hear me now. The way that people in our lives are going to know that Jesus is real and alive is the way that they see him working in and through his people. You know what I'm saying? They didn't even try to refute it. They came up with some trumped up charges, but they didn't even try the whole Jesus is dead thing anymore. He is too evidential in his people. In chapter six, please God, let us be a people in a church like that. Please God, let us live in this community that way. That the reality of the risen Christ would be irrefutable because of the lives that we live. Please God. Do that here. I want us also to notice something about Stephen that some of you would also like to have. In verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the opposition, right? The Sanhedrin, the governing body, they're persecuting, they're looking at him, they're like, the dude looks like an angel. Now, what does that mean? Does it look something like this? Oh, wait, that's my daughter, Fifi. Come on. Oh, Fifi. If this were a pictorial Bible, there'd be that picture next to that verse. Is that what it means? Did Stephen look like Fifi? I doubt it. When we think of, and just leave that photo up forever, Tim. 
When we think of angels, generally, biblically speaking, what we think of are those beings that are in proximity to God. The Bible portrays them as being in the presence of God, right? So thinking about the presence of God and it being reflected in someone's face, think about Moses in Exodus 34. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Remember that whole thing? Remember he's up on Mount Sinai and God meets with him and God gives him the Ten Commandments and all that stuff happens. And Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God passes by and tucks him in the cleft of a rock and then passes by and Moses gets to see his afterglow. And then Moses glowed afterward because of this proximity thing with the presence and the glory of God. So I think that there was this real thing happening with Stephen, that his face was like an angel, and it had to do with proximity, or communion with, or time spent with Jesus. I think it's a description of someone whose communion with God is such the divine glory is reflected in her or him in this case. In other words, I think it was obvious to all present that Stephen had been with God. Remember Acts 4.13 that Bo preached on a few weeks ago? When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Right? It was obvious to the religious leaders, these dudes don't know very much, but they show a lot. Hear me now. These dudes don't know very much, but they're showing a lot. It was evidential to them that these dudes had been with Jesus. I think that's what's going on with Stephen. He's in this situation where everyone's against him. You cannot underscore how intimidating it would be to be dragged before the Sanhedrin as a Jewish person at that time. Who, because of the charges levied against him, had authority to condemn him to death or not. Jesus had him just been crucified under the influence of the same folks. There is no way to over-exaggerate. Over yeah, I over-exaggerate a lot. To over-exaggerate how intimidating this would be. It would be very normal for someone in this situation to have a look of horror and fear and trembling upon their face. But Stephen looked like an angel. There was this quality of person he had because of his relationship with Jesus. And I'm just saying I want it. I think this is a key that sort of unlocks the person of Stephen. So returning to what he was full of, full of the spirit, full of faith, full of wisdom, full of grace and full of power. I want us to return for a moment to that idea so prevalent in the book of Acts of being full of the spirit. Because I believe that the other things he was full of are connected, or we could even say are derivatives of being full of the spirit. In other words, when you're full of the spirit, these other things are happening in your life to one degree or another. That is made explicit in verse 10, again, when it says he could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. We've already been told he was full of wisdom, and now we're told explicitly that the source of that wisdom was the Spirit. 
Catch that? Remember, Jesus had said to his disciples in the context of a time when they would be persecuted, in Luke chapter 21, verse 15, he said to them, I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you in the context of when they are dragged before rulers, such as, as is happening here. Jesus had promised that they, his apostles, experienced per- his disciples would experience some persecution at a time when God would give them the right words. Jesus would give them the right words. I want you to notice that this is a fulfillment of that, and I want you to notice how Jesus is doing it. He's doing it by the Spirit. I want you to be thinking about the Holy Spirit and enabling now. He's doing it by the Spirit. It says explicitly, the Spirit was giving Stephen wisdom. Jesus had said, I will give you wisdom. How is Jesus fulfilling his promise to his people? He's fulfilling it through the person of the Holy Spirit. So then the derivatives of being full of the Spirit, faith, wisdom, grace, and power are also worked in us by the Holy Spirit. But it also becomes clear when we study Scripture that faith, grace, and wisdom are also imparted to us through God's Word. We gain and grow in faith, grace, and wisdom when we spend time in God's Word. But it's not as though it's an either-or path. You can either get faith, wisdom, and grace, and power through the Spirit or through the Word. As if then it could create some dichotomy within the body of Christ. Like, oh, we're Spirit guys. Oh, yeah, well, we're Word guys. Stupid. There is no dichotomy there. It is not an either or. You don't get to say, I'm a Spirit guy, I'm a Word guy. It is always God's Holy Spirit working through God's Holy Word. And it's not an either-or path. It, was, it is both and. We receive this quality of character by being full of the Spirit, and we get faith, wisdom, grace, and power worked into us through the truth of God's Word. Spirit works in and through and with God's Word in us. Next week, we'll see that Stephen mounts his defense to the whole Sanhedrin there. Right? They've got these charges against him. He mounts his defense. It is, uh, how long is it? Man, it's, it's, it's 53 verses long. Stephen gets more time in the book of Acts than any other person. 53 verses long, he gives his defense. And you know what his defense is? It's just a good old-fashioned, old-school Bible study. He just starts with Abraham and he just walks his accusers through the Bible and what God has done and then draws a conclusion from it that we'll see next week. That was the wisdom that they couldn't even deal with was just the word of God. And Colossians 3.17 says to us that we ought to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Man, the word of God was dwelling richly in Stephen so that when there was opposition, he had 53 verses of Bible on the end of his tongue. Please, God, let us be people of your word. Let us be like that in times of opposition. Jesus promised that this would happen in our life as it pertains to the Holy Spirit. He said in John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said. 
So the Holy Spirit helps us to retain, live out of, and proclaim God's word. But you've got to get God's word in first. That's what the Spirit works with, right? Jesus said the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So here's the way that Christian life works in opposition or in difficulty. God's word is dwelling richly in us because we actually read it. If you haven't heard yet and you don't know, if you're a believer in Jesus, you've got to read your Bible. How often? All the time. How much? As much as you can. Can you just read five minutes a day? Awesome, do five minutes a day. Can you just read three minutes a day? Awesome, do three minutes a day. Can you do three hours a day? Awesome, do three hours a day. Right? Just get the word of God coming in because it is through God's holy word that God's holy spirit works in us faith, wisdom, grace, and power. God wants us to be full of these things. So he gives us the means. To be full of faith. I mean, the scriptures are clear that faith is a gift from God. God gives us faith. He he wants us to have faith. He wants us to be full of faith. We are also told that our faith comes through the word of God. Again, Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So God gives us faith because he loves us. He wants us to know him and follow him, believe in him and trust in him. Uh, Faith also comes to us through God's word. As we read the word, our faith grows. Therefore, if you are not reading the word, your faith is not growing. And I would argue in this world with all the other things that we consume and the messages that we take in, if our faith isn't growing, it's shrinking. Shrinking. Everybody do that with me. Shrinking. It's a little calisthenics. Shrinking. Your faith isn't growing by God's word. Your faith is shrinking can I get a witness and then faith special faith is also a gift from the Holy Spirit we're told in Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 a gift of the Spirit for certain times that face God's people when they need an extra measure of faith to trust God for something the Holy Spirit gives a gift of faith God wants us to have wisdom He wants us to live wisely in these evil days, it says in Ephesians. Wants us to walk in wisdom. So much so that he says, listen, dude, just ask me for wisdom and I'll give it to you. Look at James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Now, pause right there. The first part is realizing that you lack wisdom. Let me just tell you, you lack wisdom. I lack wisdom. We need wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, I mean, listen, if you're ever saying, no, you know what? I'm wise enough. Hey, dude. Okay. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Listen to that promise. The Bible doesn't really say that about much else. If any of you lacks money, you should ask God. There's not that promise in there. If any of you lacks vacation time, you should ask God. If any of you lacks a second home, 
If any of you lacks a wife or a spouse, if any of you lacks honor or prestige, just ask God and God will give it to you. It doesn't say it about any of those things that we spend so much time pursuing, that we fret about so much, that we resource so heavily. Apparently God thinks that wisdom is more important than that stuff. God says, here's the deal. You need wisdom to live this life and to follow me. So if you ask me, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to trip on you. I'm going to generously give you wisdom. Think about your marriage and its difficulties. Think about your parenting and its challenges. Think about what's going on in your finances, your place of work, your relationships, your community. Think about, as a nation, the wisdom that we need. Ask for wisdom and God will give it to you. Wisdom is so important. I want us to see the way that wisdom is personified in Proverbs chapter 2. Let's turn there. Proverbs chapter 2. We'll just read the whole thing together. It will not be on the screen. It'll be on the Bible in front of you. If you feel like you're lacking wisdom, Proverbs is a great book to be reading. Uh, I'm not doing it currently, but there's a lot of rhythms in my life where I'll just read a proverb every day. When my son turned 13, he's now 17. When he turned 13, I said, oh boy, he's a teenager now. He's going to need wisdom. So I wrote a study through the book of Proverbs to do with him. So I just went through and outlined what wisdom is for a young man and for character formation. And we just, every day for a while, would sit down and study what it looks like to be wise from the book of Proverbs. So I just want us to see the importance that's given to wisdom in God's word. Uh, We're going to read all of Proverbs chapter 2. Solomon, I believe, writes and says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commandments within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair. Every good path. Pause right there. How, How needed is that in our world today? A people, a group of people who truly understand what is right and just and fair. Oh man, we need that. Every good path. Verse 10, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men. See why I did this study with my teenage son? From men whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Wisdom saves us from that. Verse 16, wisdom will save you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her path to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Thus, 
You will walk in the ways of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the unfaithful will be torn from it. See the promises of wisdom as it pertains to our lives and then think about the messes we make in our lives because we're unwise. Think about the unwise decisions we make in relationships and faithfulness and unfaithfulness, unwise stewarding decisions, unwise decisions about forgiving and withholding forgiveness, unwise decisions about our sexuality. Think about the unwise decisions we make in parenting that have reverberating effects for generations. I mean, this is like serious life and death stuff here. I think that's reflective of the quality in the life of Stephen. I just want to look at Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. This is my father's favorite passage in the Bible. He recently gave this to me on something that he wrote to me, and it's always in my mind. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Man, we need wisdom. Look what James says about wisdom from above. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. The humility that comes from wisdom, pardon me. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, how many know what that's like? Oh, really? Just six of you? You guys are the most holy, righteous humans I've ever known. No selfish ambition, no bitterness. Well, I'm putting both hands up. (laughs) But if me and six other people harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in our hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, okay, selfish ambition and bitterness, bitter envy, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly and spiritual and demonic. Continuing. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. That's a clue. But the wisdom that comes from heaven or from above is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. How badly do you want to know someone like that? So be that person. Wisdom from above. Ask God for wisdom. Seek wisdom. We need to be full of this as Stephen was full of it. So imagine what his life was like if the Bible says he was full of wisdom. Please, God, let us be those people. Stephen was also full of grace. Now, I've been wondering what that means. What does it mean that he was full of grace? Because grace is the undeserved kindness of God. That's what grace is. So he was full of the undeserved kindness of God. So if he is full of the undeserved kindness of God, I think that that means to be full of grace, that he knew how to receive it and he knew how to extend it. Those are really important things to learn in the Christian life. Not as easily done as said. To learn to receive grace from God and our successes and our failures 
and to learn to extend the grace of God to others in their successes and their failures. You know, being full of grace allows us to do, it allows us to celebrate other people and what God is doing in their life rather than be envious and covetous of them. It allows us to see them as fellow recipients of grace instead of competition to be trampled and pushed down and walked over. It creates harmony in relationships when we're full of grace. To receive the full of grace, I'm a beloved son or daughter of God, not according to who I am, but who Jesus is and what he did for me. And so are they. So I'm going to receive grace in my successes. Was it me? Glory to God. All is grace and in my failures. Thank you for your mercy, God. And then extending it to others in their successes and failures. Don't you want to know someone like that? Then be that person. Stephen was that kind of person. So much so that when they murder him at the end of chapter 6, the last words to come out of his mouth are, Lord, do not hold these things against them. There's a man full of grace. They're going to murder him by throwing rocks at him tough way to die and the last thing he says is lord don't hold this against them who did he sound like jesus who said the same thing when they nailed him to the cross you see i think the thing about stephen is that he was a lot like jesus don't you think don't you think this is ultimately a description of jesus don't you think stephen is just a cool little picture of christ likeness even in his physical appearance face like an angel. What this should do is draw us to the beauty and the person and the character of Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit who works in us in tandem with God's word, the likeness of Christ. So the repeated refrain of the Christian ought to be, God, fill me with your spirit. God, fill me with your spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says we are to be being constantly filled with the Spirit. We've already seen just in six chapters of Acts that there are repeated fillings with the Spirit. If Stephen was someone who was full of the Spirit, it means he was repeatedly being filled by the Spirit because he was receptive and he was asking God, God, fill me with your Spirit afresh. Fill me with your Spirit afresh in all situations. It means that he was a guy who was walking in the spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. It means that the fruit of the spirit was being evidentially worked out in his life. Right? The fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Self-control. Help me, Jesus. Self-control. The fruit of the spirit. And I think because he was full of the Holy Spirit, I think it means that Stephen was living a life that did not, listen, here's where we'll finish, that did not quench or grieve the Spirit. Here's how it seems to work in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit may bestow or withdraw blessing according to whether or not he is pleased with the situation. This may be why we talk about, and the Bible gives us a language of continually being filled or being filled again or needed, needing subsequent repeated fillings with the Spirit. This is not the Spirit in residence in us that makes us children of God, that has regenerated us. This is that upon experience that we talked about from Acts chapter 2 that we see happening over and over again. And the Spirit came upon them and the Spirit came upon them, it says in the book of Acts. Why does it seem that we need fresh fillings? Do we leak? Are we crackpots? Does he come out somewhere? 
No, it seems that in the rhythms of our life, we often grieve and quench the Spirit. And the Spirit, in the sense of the upon way that blesses, seems to ebb and flow according to that. We learn in the New Testament that Jesus was completely without sin, and so the Spirit remained on him. But we also learn that the Spirit can be grieved, Ephesians 4. The Spirit can be quenched, 1 Thessalonians 5. The Spirit can be resisted, Acts 7. The Spirit can be insulted, and the Spirit can be lied to by us. And so not bring blessing to a situation. This is then where repentance comes in and prayers of fresh filling. This ought to be the regular rhythm of a Christian. Lord, I recognize that failure. God, forgive me for that. And please fill me fresh with your Holy Spirit, God. You can't lose with that prayer. Hello? You can't lose with that prayer. I don't care if you have theological, doctrinal, nuanced differences with that and what the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament teaches. You can't lose with that prayer. If you name a certain sin and repent of it and ask to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, your Father who loves you knows what you're asking for. And you can't lose. You're never going to say, oh, dude, I'm bummed that I repented and prayed to be filled with the Spirit. That didn't work. So then, when our conduct is pleasing to God, the Holy Spirit seems to be more present and to bring much blessing in our life. Remember the definition uh, that we've looked at a couple times from Wayne Grudem, my favorite theologian. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the immediate presence of God himself. And it therefore will result in feeling what God feels, desiring what God desires, doing what God wants, speaking by God's power, praying and ministering in God's strength, and knowing with the knowledge which God himself gives. How much do we need that? in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships, in our church, in our city, in our serving, in our ministering, in our hopes, and in our dreams, in our self-perception, in our understanding of one another in community. We need that. That is the fruit of being filled with the Spirit. The New Testament says that we can know close fellowship with the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13, and that we can be in partnership with the Spirit, Philippians 2. So part of the Christian adventure is learning to be in fellowship with God's Spirit. To not grieve, to not quench, to not lie to. But to live in a way where we abide and walk in and experience the fruit of the Spirit through surrender, through obedience, through seeking. And I think the New Testament also teaches them about someone who's full of the Spirit that they experience on a regular basis because life is hard Can I get a witness? Right? Like none of this kept Stephen from hard times. They kill him. Just like they killed Jesus. They kill him. Life is hard. None of this keeps us from hard times. But I do believe that this work of the Spirit in our lives during hard times promises comfort, joy, peace, and hope. Comfort, joy, peace, and hope. Life's going to be hard. There's going to be bummers. There's going to be opposition, failure, suffering. But in the Spirit through surrender, obedience, and seeking, through developing relationship with God's Spirit, we can experience comfort, joy, peace, and hope. Look at Acts 9, this description. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit continued to increase. They knew some drama. 
some real persecution, especially by Acts chapter 9. But they had peace and comfort. Look at this next passage. And the believers were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. They knew hard times, but they're filled with joy in the Spirit. Look at this next passage. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Man, our world needs hope. We need hope. Our community needs hope. Our relationships need hope. These things abound in us and are witnessed and testified about through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that Stephen knew those things so that when he was opposed and his life was threatened ultimately taken, he still maintained faith and wisdom and grace in the midst of it. He even had a face like an angel just before his death. May we also reflect the goodness and beauty, peace, joy, and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Lord, help us now to respond to your word. Help us to believe every word of your word. And help us to believe the implications of your word, that these things are real and available to us and affect the world around us. So show us ways now that we need to pray. Show us postures that we need to take before you of repentance, of confession. Lord, some of us have situations in our life we need real wisdom. We need abounding grace. We need power for you to show up miraculously. And Jesus, we know that all of these things are in you. For the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. And our faith is in you. And you are the very wisdom of God. And God's grace has been brought to us in you, Jesus. And you have all the power. So we put all of our hope in you, Christ. Teach us to seek you now for every need in our life and what you're doing.